This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. If you're enjoying the ideas and inspiration from the wide variety of guests and their experiences from the last five seasons of this podcast, just know that the best way to take the next step and deepen your knowledge in order to apply the skills and learning to regenerate your world is to read a book. New Society Publishers' vision is to provide the world with fundamental tools to help build a just and ecologically sustainable society, and many of the guests that I've interviewed here on the show are authors published by them. You can find all of their work in ebook, audiobook, and classic paperback at newsociety.org. Hey there, everybody, and welcome back. Now, today is the last episode in this series on building community. Now, though there remains so much that we could say about this topic, I wanted to wrap up this endlessly complex and nuanced subject with a discussion about the challenges and the learning of integrating into a foreign community. Now, of course, I have a lot of my own thoughts and stories on this, but I also immediately thought back to check in with a friend of mine who's been on this show before in a previous series on homesteading and who's had similar experiences, which he's actually developed much, much further than I ever have. So Zach Barton is a permaculture designer, an activist, and a teacher who's been living in Nepal since 2003. In 2005, he founded the Kamala Foundation, an organization committed to bringing the principles of permaculture to life and providing community-based programming to cultivate resilience and revitalize traditional and ecological ways of being. He also established Almost Heaven Farms in 2013, where he researches, demonstrates, and trains local farmers and international visitors in permaculture design, earth-based building, and ecological restoration. Specializing in program design and implementation, Zachary has worked in communities across Nepal and was instrumental in co-founding the Resilience Through Recovery Project, which employed permaculture techniques to help villages to recover from the devastating earthquakes of 2015. He currently is working to develop a network of communities committed to regenerative development across the Himalayan bioregion. Now, in this conversation, Zach and I focused on our shared experiences working to integrate ourselves into the foreign communities where we've settled. We talk about the challenges and even the hilarious failures that we've faced in the process and many of the learnings that have come out of it. Now, I work with many people who are moving to foreign parts of the world and are working to establish land and community-based projects. And for a lot of reasons, my guidance always centers around putting their efforts into personal growth and the learning that is required to be a part of the culture and the social space that they're hoping to live and to work in. Now, Zach particularly is one of my favorite examples to point to of a Westerner who has found an important place for himself where he lives that he's cultivating through humility, deep listening, patience, and a priority on respect for the people around him. Now, this turned into a really fun conversation with admissions on both of our parts of embarrassing learning curves, as well as honest admissions of the fact that we're both still very much growing and evolving in this space. And before we get started, I do want to apologize for the mediocrity of some of the audio quality. Just like my personal struggles in the early days of this show when we were recording back in the shack in the middle of the mountains in Guatemala, Zach is also just coming out of the monsoon rains in his rural community in the mountains, so you'll have to bear with us in a few spots, but I cleaned things up as best I could. And anyway, with that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Zach Barton. 
Zach, first of all, awesome to speak to you again. I know we've been in touch a little bit over the Discord channel that you've been on for a long time, and I've been following your work on the different articles that you post. I love your writing and such. But this is the first time that we've actually gotten to talk again since the last interview. I'm really excited to hear what's new, what's happening at your homestead, what's happening in the foundation. Give me a little update. Yeah, great, Oliver. Great to be back. Uh, same thing. I've been following you uh, really closely since our first conversation. Really impressed with the work that's going on. Really inspiring. I'm, I'm picking up new regenerative skills and knowledge and uh, even connections. Um, so thanks for that. Uh, you put me on to Graham Sate also, who uh, I got to have a, a two-hour um, conversation with actually, and uh, just really helped me with the biofertilizer development and the plant nutrition. So the, the, the nutrition farming, all that kind of stuff. I've just been soaking up uh, everything that you're putting out there. So thanks. Oh, amazing. I'm so <laughs> glad to that. hear that connection. Yeah, that guy is a wealth of knowledge. Oh man, it's, it's crazy. Well, I pretty much everybody that you interview is, is really just on the forefront of of their fields and and uh really amazing connections you've made so thanks for passing all that stuff on and that kind of yeah that kind of leads into um uh what we've been doing so on the on the um farming side of it and the homesteading side of it i mean that's that's always going on and uh farm gets better and better every year we actually added um a third farm so it's um our farms aren't only farms, they're, they're centers. So we do a lot of um, different things, different activities besides just running our own farm. Running our own farm is a big part of it, of course. And that's the important thing for us is, is to have that fully functional operating farms as, as part of our resilience strategy for our own lives and our own family. Um, but every farm is also a, a center. So up here in the mid hillside, uh, at almost seven farms. So that's a full-fledged permaculture education and training center. Um, and then we have our first farm, which is an organic, um, it's organic rice production and food forestry that's down south, that's in the subtropical area of Nepal, so southern part of Nepal. Uh, and then we just established our third center, and this is up quite a bit higher in the, in the hillside. So it's at 2,500 meters. So I think that's about 8,000 feet. Um, and that's a women's led agroecology center. So another farm, but the center's activity will be as a base for women's groups and developing agroecology um, being led by, by different women and different women's groups. So uh, adding another farm onto the plate has um, has kept me busy uh, over the last half of a year. And uh, yeah, everything's going good. I mean, the soil is getting better. Diversity is growing all the time. Um, we've been playing around with different crops, new crops, you know, perfecting our, our management practices on other crops. I've been really pushing our farms to move more into no dig. I mean, we don't call it no till because we don't till here. We dig with... Uh, with tools because we're on a hillside, so we don't even plow. Uh, but yeah, no dig systems, uh, more cover crop systems, uh, a lot of mulching. So getting heavy into into mulched raised beds, you know, 
Um, and then perennial, more and more perennial systems. So we've uh, also started a fruit and nut uh, tree seedling nursery on at almost seven farms. And that's to plant out on our three farms as well as to provide as a resource to different communities, different farmers, organizations, even uh, local governments uh, to promote uh, this idea of fruits and nuts as, um, as a perennial cropping system, which is uh, more resilient and also kind of appropriate. So appropriate varieties and uh, appropriate trees for this area. So uh, yeah, all, all that kind of stuff just keeps going on. Trees keep growing, getting bigger. We have more firewood, we have more bamboo, the soil's improving, everything, yeah, just, just kind of keeps growing. Incredible. I can imagine this is with all these moving parts, you've got a lot on your plate and it must be a time management and an organization challenge as much as anything to do with the ecology. How have you found to manage that? Is it you getting to the point where you have to delegate a lot of tasks or are you still trying to take on most of it yourself? No, no, you nailed it, man. I'm, uh, I'm working on my delegation capacity, let's say. So, and, and there's a couple of pieces to that, right? So one is, um, being able to transition from micromanagement to macro management. And I think you know very well that when you're a very hands-on person, you know, you like to be the one right in the ground and getting your hands dirty. And it, it's hard for you to let go of, of some of the elements um, of the farm or the, the business or the organization. So that is more of a um, kind of a mental break you gotta be able to, to handle. Uh, and then it's also about developing people. So a lot of my work is developing people that I can hand responsibility to. So um, I work with a lot of young people. I mean, Nepal has a very young uh, demographic. So it's a very young population. Um, a lot of, I mean, I'm working with people from 16 years old, even, which I'm trying to train and, and help them build the capacity to um, at least take over small projects, you know, a one-week project or, or a small piece of the of the farming system and stuff like that. So yeah, uh, delegation um, has been a big part of my life the last the last half a year, year for sure. Yes, it's one of the things that I like about connecting with you is that we've often had so many similar experiences. And I know we both got into this because we love to work on the ground. Like for me, it was a lot of natural building. For you, it was the farming stuff. And there's been a lot of overlaps in that. But you definitely get to a point where your time is not best used, you know, working in the fields or mixing mud to put on the walls. It's rather you start to move into an educational and a mentorship role and then managing the teams and the newly capacitated people who can go out and start to develop their skills. And I don't know about you, but I've always kind of struggled with that dynamic, like realizing that it's necessary while also balancing the fact that those were not my motivations for getting into this line of work at the same time. Um, but I guess wearing the, the necessary hats as those things are called for. How have you balanced that? Well, I, th I think that's it is like, how do you balance it? And, and I mean, I will never leave actually doing farming myself because it just brings me too much, too much joy. Um, you know, it's, it's my exercise. It's the way I keep my, my body fit and, and keep my health up. So like, I don't, I think that balance, I guess it's, it's kind of looking like maybe 50, 50 right now. Like I still want to be, and, and I, I think I need to 
still keep my feet on the ground and have my hands in the soil and stuff because that's going to keep me centered and it's just so important in this field of work also like I mean how can you work in agriculture and just sit in an office the whole time I mean I know people can and there's different roles that people play but I mean I want to have that hands-on daily experience so I think right now it's like yeah 50 50 um and then slowly stepping back, empowering people, uh, enabling people to do that work. Let's see. I mean, it's also a process. And it's funny, Oliver, because there's also a pull, you know, where I am being pulled to manage things more. I'm being pulled to spend more time developing relationships, um, you know, with government bodies, other organizations, other businesses. So sometimes life is not about your choice and what you want either it's kind of about you know what's needed to be done and I guess that knowing that it's needed to be done and that there's going to be even greater impacts I guess I'm finding myself being a little bit more flexible on 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 letting go of some of those grassroots activities that I like to be involved with yeah that makes sense I think you you, you put it really well there Zach like there is a sense of duty in this as well right um, certain things are, are calling us to step into because perhaps nobody else is either able or willing to do them. And that's often how I kind of find peace in that, even when I'm not finding the balance that I would ideally like is, you know, this is the work that needs to get done right now. And either I'm uniquely suited to do it, or there's just nobody else stepping up at the moment. And I don't know. Being able to contribute in that way so that things don't stagnate or start to move backwards is also quite, I don't know about fulfilling all the time. <laughs> there's, there's always a, a give and take, right? Um, but, but it is necessary. And hopefully, you know, we, we work towards finding better balance over the long run and making sure that we don't lose our connection to the land in the process, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, um, you know, very well that in this life there's there's that you have to manage and we're not we're not just talking about the complexity of a natural ecosystem we're talking about the complexity of um, businesses corporations having to work with governments you know having to be able to communicate between all the stakeholders um, in a movement or in a project where um, it's yeah I guess a lot of that responsibility just falls on your plate because there isn't enough people with with that diversity of skills and and capacities to be able to do it. So, what to do? And and like you said, I mean, I think we know the time is now to do all of this work. I mean, there's no there's no point sitting around for another five ten years. So, if the calling is there, I mean, we go after it. And I'm I guess I'm pretty much willing to do whatever I need right now to make this uh, continue to move forward. Right. Yeah, and I, yeah, I'm sure right. you're. I'm sure you understand this well. Well, so this is actually what I really want to explore with you in this conversation is the community dynamics that, especially people like ourselves, who are both living in countries that we are foreign to, uh, need to navigate um, in the concepts of like cultural assimilation, uh, understanding your role in a place that's been established and has its own dynamics uh, long before you came there, in order to I guess, cultivate the awareness and the observation necessary to play an important role, but without bringing, let's say, your own cultural baggage and perhaps colonial mindset, which I know it's taken me a long time to work through 
and have, you know, I continue to navigate in these different places. Like we're, we're, we're coming up against a lot of other barriers that people who understand their culture are from the places that they're working in don't necessarily have to tiptoe around the way that we have. Um, what have been some of your biggest learnings in, well, you've got more than a decade in Nepal now, in integrating into that community and finding your, your place, your niche in how you can affect change in a way that takes into account the nuances of the culture that you're working in? Yeah, I guess it's, um, it's, it's an ongoing process of establishing your role in, in your community. And I don't think it's ever necessarily fixed. And I think it's like, we're just talking about my life is changing now because of the demands of this work. And um, I'm being forced to put on different hats, which I never had on, had to wear before. So I think I've, what I've always been good at, and again, like in our last conversation, we talked about how easy it is as a foreigner to be in Nepal because um, of the culture here and because they haven't been colonized. And I mean, all of those, those really great things, the diversity of uh, linguistic groups, ethnic groups, religions, everything in Nepal, there's already quite a bit of diversity. So I just kind of somehow sometimes feel like I'm just, you know, another drop in that, that soup. Um, but I think for me, it's always been um, just trying to be as, as open to people here, um, empowering people to guide processes. Cause the, I mean, it, it's, it's not difficult to work in a foreign co country if you're open to what people think and their ways of knowing and, and seeing and doing um, and just embrace, I, I, I don't have a, a, what would I call it? Like a specific strategy or a way of doing things, which I've held on to. It's, it's just grown um, organically. It's been influenced by my own experiences. And yes, my background and, and stuff like that, it pay, plays a part of that. Um, but now, yeah, almost 19 years in Nepal, my when I was in university, one of my friends, uh, she would call me a chameleon. Um, mm. And it's because just kind of whatever, you know, whoever's around me in whatever situation I'm, I'm in. And I don't know, have you ever come across uh, Bill Mollison's concept of the translator? He wrote about this in the in the designer's manual. Yeah, it's been a while since I read back on that. Uh, refresh my memory. Well, it's just it's very much about, um, you know, the 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 principle of valuing the edge or valuing the marginal spaces um, like we talk about you know the the edge of a pond is actually you know it's it's two elements it's a water element and a land element and it, it incorporates both uh, the characteristics of those of those two elements so he also used it to explain people and I believe he probably saw himself as this kind of translator um, but it's someone who's um on both sides you know so i am a foreigner and i look like a foreigner and i came from canada and even after 19 years i still have a funny accent when i speak nepali um but i'm not i'm not fully a foreigner because i'm very much nepali and i live in a rural area and uh, i am farming and stuff like that so i think that puts me you know 
uh, as a translator between those two worlds or those two spaces. So I'm very good at explaining um, Nepal to foreign people. Mm. And I'm very good at translating the intricacies of the foreign world and the Western world and concepts and stuff like that into two Nepali communities. So I, I guess I, I guess I, that's how I see my role in the, the community uh, <laughs> to, to, to loop back to what you actually asked is, I mean, um, translating between these two worlds, translating, um, you know, even pulling resources, sharing resources between the two worlds. Uh, it's kind of the role that I've, something I'm good at, and then something that I think I've found purpose in and that I've been able to bring something to the community here and, and the community back in Canada also. That's amazing. That's uh, an ability that I have a lot of reverence for. I've seen other people do it effectively in a lot of places where I've worked. And it is such an essential skill, especially in the modern world, when cultures are intermingling constantly. And there's a lot of possibility. And I've seen plenty of examples of where miscommunication can cause a lot of stress um, and break processes down from, from, yeah, from just that lack of understanding. Uh, and there's few people who have the type of, you know, nearly 20 years of experience in a place, speaking the language, living with the people regularly, um, but also, you know, the background that you have from Canada and the Western world and the contrast in between those being able to effectively communicate them between the communities is, uh, I, yeah, I, I really respect people who take on that role. Um, and with that, what have been some of perhaps the disciplines or the cultivations that you have managed to leverage for more effective communication or better integration into that community? Oh, that's that's a great question, Oliver. I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know how to. It's it's been so organic and unconscious mm. that I don't even I don't even know if I could say like I've ever put a conscious effort into cultivating any specific skill um i don't i don't know like well okay well what, what's been your experience what, what what kind of skills have you cultivated as you've worked in different communities around the world man skills is tricky because i think they're pretty unique to individuals right like if i were to recommend certain skills or things that came easily to me they may not be the ones that work for others but uh, the reason why I asked that question was because I found disciplines and practices to kind of be those things that fill in the gaps. So one of the obvious ones, of course, is making the effort to speak the local language. There's always going to be a barrier that you're not going to get past and that people are not going to be able to welcome you into aspects of society if you don't understand the local language. Um, for me, first, it was learning Spanish in, in Latin America, but of course, that's the colonial language. And then so though I never got to a level of proficiency in just a couple of years that I was in Guatemala, uh, working on at least greetings, common phrases and pleasantries in Cachiquel and the community there in Surinana where, where, where we're doing that homesteading project. Um, even those small efforts, even though I couldn't understand full conversations, but got to a point of you know being able to at least show a sign of respect because nobody there from the foreign community or very, very few people make the effort of actually learning Cactiquel. It is such a regional and small language. You can barely even travel with it within Guatemala. And on the other side of that lake, they spoke Sutuhil. And so 
you know, it, you really have to make an effort and say, okay, I'm going to take time and show uh, reverence for the culture of where I am because it's not otherwise very practical if you leave. Um, and it made a big difference. The way that people treated me, even just with that simple vocabulary and, and ability and phrases was, was really big. Um, it's something that I learned from my sister when I first traveled to Morocco. And I studied for a long time to get by in French because I knew the learning curve would be more manageable. Um, but when my sister taught me a few phrases and words in, in Derija, which is their, uh, their local colloquial variety of Arabic, um, it completely transformed the relationships that I was able to make with people, even in small and you know not very deep interactions. Uh, and so now I'm in that process of learning Catalan. Uh, I speak Spanish just fine, and I don't struggle to communicate with people around here. But there's a very big difference in how people relate and communicate with you if you make the effort to speak to them in Catalan. Um, the, the state government here has done a fantastic job about promoting the local language and making sure that it doesn't die off because it's only spoken in a small region on the eastern side of Spain. And just like everywhere else where, you know, small cultural aspects and traditions are lost and small languages are lost constantly, um, I feel a sense of, well, obligation, but like duty as a citizen of this area, someone who's putting down roots here to learn to communicate in the way that that is part of the history here. Um, but anyway, that, that's just one aspect. And, and the rest is, is going out and making an effort, even when it's difficult. Uh, that closely relates to the language, but there's a lot of things that maybe I have even initial mm, apprehension towards because of my personality. And like, I'm not super social. I don't tend to go out into big groups, but there's a lot of functions. There's a lot of traditions and festivals and things around here that reinforce the cultural history of this place. And my partner and I try and make an effort to participate in those, to understand how local politics work. Um, and all of these other things that you take for granted when you grew up in a place and they've just always been around you. But there are differences in how they work. Uh, and if you don't make an effort, that it's not just knowledge that comes to you uh, without without doing a little investigation yourself. At least that's what I've found. Do you make an effort to do those things like uh, with a real strategy in the beginning or is it something that just sort of evolved as you spent time there? Yeah, well, I mean, when, when I talk about that, a lot of it happened organically, I guess I would say that because I was doing things because I wanted to, and mm -hmm. like, I wanted to learn, I wanted to learn the language, I wanted to be able to understand what the, you know, the old man sitting on the side of the road, smoking a chillum, you know, what he yeah. was talking about. And when you're up in the mountains, you know, high up in the mountains, and it's snowing, and you know, the people are talking about languages is, is first is language. 100% the most important. If you do not understand what people are saying, or if they're forced to communicate in English, you know, to, to make you understand, that's not even fair. And, and you're not getting, you're not going to understand. Uh, you're not going to get the full meaning of, of what's in their heart and stuff like that. And then as well as, I mean, how do you explain, how do you communicate yourself to them if you can't say it in in words and and in a dialogue that they understand so um language 100 and i would even say this like in south asia here um and and like specifically in nepal if you don't speak the local language 
people are going to cheat you like right, left and center, you know? Mm. And, and it's like, it's like, it's like, um, and, and, and I know that people, especially tourists, they don't really don't like that. And they don't understand that culture. Like everything should be a fixed price and on the price tag and you pay exactly what is there and not one, not one rupee more or less. And, but that's not how it works in all cultures. And here it's like, if you cannot communicate to that person why they shouldn't cheat you and why they should give you the proper price and have that dialogue. And it's a game, right? If you don't play those kind of games and, and understand that part of the culture and stuff like that, then that's just what happens. And a lot of foreign people, they get their asses handed to them on a plate, you know, when they're trying to do business or something here. And it's because they, I mean, I like that word effort that you use, even if you don't speak the language perfectly, the fact that you're trying to use their words and their concepts and you understand that there's a culture behind everything you do, even buying a cup of tea on the side of the road. Yes. Um, then, yeah, then, and, and it's not, it's not because you're a foreigner, they do it to each other also. Right. If, if there's somebody that wants a cup of tea and they don't have time and you know, and they're just like, what's the price. Okay. And they just want to pay whatever it is. Cause they got to run. They'll get cheated also. It's mm. um, there's a culture behind it all. And taking the, eff the time and the effort to engage in that culture, to understand the language, yeah, 100%. That's so fundamental to, to be able to make it here, for sure. And did you struggle, like I have done in so many places, to get over your preconceived notions about what is right and wrong and the way to interact with people? Like, man, I had so much baggage. Uh, and, like, I grew up in Japan. I traveled a lot as a kid. I think I was a lot more open-minded than the average person who hasn't really moved around. And I still ended up like <laughs> just just clashing a lot with things uh, that came from my own preconceived notions that that I had to kind of had to get over. Oh, for sure, for sure, Oliver. Like the concept of truth or the concept of reality, mm. you know, like that's something so fixed. My my Canadian brain, you know, like there there <laughs> is one truth. There is what's right and what's wrong and there's no gray space in the middle oh, that was that took a while and it, it still does sometimes you know and even having a conversation um nepalis it's it's an oral tradition right like they're just people are just getting literate now where yeah. where people are reading and writing you have a whole generation where like 80 percent of the people were illiterate so the the um way of communicating was you know, by telling stories. Also, people living in the village, they didn't have a TV, there was no roads, there was no electricity. I mean, your entertainment was getting drunk and telling stories, you know, and or getting yeah, drunk yeah. and listening to other people's stories. That was, that was like the, the life for generations. So, and then when you have that kind of oral tradition and when you have that storytelling tradition, reality becomes what you make it right reality becomes a story that you tell over and over and over and the more times you tell it you know that's when people start to believe and that's when something becomes real and and and, and even can become a truth um whereas for us it's like okay well i'm gonna google that no that's not correct you know i'm gonna google that right. and then like it's it's not whether it's 100 true or not i'm telling a story i'm engaging with you we're sharing a moment together and um, I find it really beautiful, um, but I find it, I still find it challenging sometimes, especially when it comes to maybe the negative side of cultures. I mean, every traditional culture has really beautiful things in it, 
but there's also some negative things in it. So sometimes when stories um, kind of, you know, uh, perpetuate things which are negative for women or for other ethnic right. groups or, you know, maintain that high caste, low caste uh, system and stuff like that. But it's just, it is what it is, right? Oh, Zach, I really like that you brought that up because that was actually uh, the harder thing for me. Like, sure, you have judgments coming from where you come from, but then the harder thing for me to actually unpack was the romanticism that I have for other places and this kind of uneducated reverence or assumptions for how they relate to the natural world, how they relate to one another. And by projecting that onto them, I would end up like disappointed when you realize completely that they're just people like you <laughs> and anybody else and they have the same struggles they have the same communication issues uh the same family fights and you know like being able to get past the romanticism uh and and see people for who they are and the reality of their situation uh regardless of whether they had access to the same information or resources as you uh, that was really a learning journey for me and continues to be. I mean, it's it's a little easier here in Spain where the culture is not so drastically different from where I grew up, but certainly in the little Mayan villages where I lived or in Senegal where I worked and Ecuador and such, where the contrasts are much bigger and you can project a lot of what you think people who live more simply are, you know, perhaps a little more moral or ethical, based on i don't really know what yeah and the longer you stay a place uh, the longer you stay in one place you know the the more you understand that yeah people are just people actually you know and and our clothes are different our, our languages are different but we all have those positive and negative things about us and um yeah, and I mean, I think, I guess another thing which is really useful um, and maybe has allowed me to be successful here is just being able to accept all of that also, right? Like that's just how it is. And um, that disappointment is because of our own expectations, not because of what the reality actually is. So that's, that's another thing. Mm. What have been some of the most important learnings in the last 19 years? What are the same things that you just got like spectacularly wrong and, and really had to learn from quickly? I know I've got a lot of those. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, I could, I could probably fill up, you know, your next 10 podcasts with all the mistakes <laughs> I've made and, and how many times I got kicked in my ass by life. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think um one thing is and especially in in a country like nepal uh, things move a lot slower there's a different mm. concept of time like we call it nepali time which yeah. is means you're at least 15 minutes to three hours late for a meeting or, or whatever <laughs> a party um but yeah i guess um being overly ambitious especially with time, like wanting to have things get done. And, you know, especially these days when I look at the situation in the world and, you know, it's important for us to get certain systems into place because that's going to make us more resilient. We need to do this. We need, I mean, we know all the things we need to do and then trying to rush to get things done. That's caused me to make a lot of mistakes. And I think probably um, my biggest learning, Oliver, has been patience, really. And yeah. um, 
accepting that things don't work how I want them to work and they're not going to happen at the pace uh, that I want them to. And I guess when I was younger, that was very frustrating. Um, and I think I made a lot of mistakes because I was trying to go too fast. I mean, you cannot, you can actually not go faster than the speed of everything around you, even if you think you can, maybe like you just can't because everything's so interconnected um, that you know, you can think you're moving forward for a short period of time, but then you're going to hit your air, smack your face up against that brick wall, right? And it's going to bring you back to the reality that things have to move at the speed of everything around you. So I think once I was able to recalibrate my, my speedometer to, to be going at, you know, the local speed and what Nepali people are comfortable with, that's made me become a lot more efficient and a lot more successful um, and I mean that also involves changing your concept uh, of time because uh, that's also a very what I had a very western idea of what time is and like not I mean I'm not Swiss you know I'm not like with a nice big Swiss watch and 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 checking every second but I mean definitely as Canadians you know you are very you, you're very limited by time also. And, and time is a resource which you never have enough of. Whereas in Nepal, we have a saying, it's just called time pass. It's like, it's actually like, how do you pass the time by? You know, which means you're doing something. It's, it's speaking about boredom, right? Like, what do you do when you're bored? And we're never bored in the Western world because we don't have enough time in the day to get things done that we want to get done. So how can we be bored? So... That's been a big, big learning. And I think also um, helped me mature a lot by letting go of those concepts of time and, and understanding that things will happen if they're meant to happen and they'll happen, you know, when it's time and when they're ready to happen. That's been big for me. Yeah. yeah what I, about you? What, what about you? Time is a huge one for me. And I'm probably even closer to the Swiss scale than you are. Like, I always have this rod, this watch on my wrist. Uh, I pride myself on being like militaristically punctual. Um, it's for me very closely connected to how I express respect for someone uh, because it's such a, a resource that I've been taught to see as limited and one that you can't get back. It's one of the ways that I choose to to express my respect for other people is by respecting their time and also demanding that that people respect that of me. Um, and I guess the thing that I would have added on to that is the different ways that people show reverence and respect around the world. That is often where I've found myself smacking my face into a cultural brick wall many times and really having uh, lessons in humility. Uh, many places where that has showed up most strongly have been in the general rituals that have to happen to start a conversation or to start a business interaction. Whereas I would go up and be like, all right, we're just going to talk about this. We're going right to business. And they're like, what a rude, inconsiderate thing to do, white boy. Like, you haven't asked me about my family. You haven't talked about what happened yesterday. There's this whole protocol of things that we talk about before we get to business. And business is incidental to this business conversation. It's much more important for us to get to know each other, to build a relationship. And that has caused me to audit uh, and look further into like, what am I actually doing in these interactions? 
And is getting work done more important than fortifying the relationship or the connection that I have with this person uh, or possibly even risking degrading it? Um, yeah, that I mean, so the concept of manners, the concept of respect in different places around the world are now something that I, I look a lot more into before starting to try and get things done and realizing that you could get something done and destroy a relationship or a connection with someone, which means that you're never gonna get anything done with them again. And is it really more important to complete a project or to create relation, lasting relationships with people that you are intricately dependent on, even in an indirect way? Uh, so, you know, is the objective of this interaction really to advance a project or is it to reinforce the trust and the respect that we have for one another and is getting a project done worth perhaps compromising that it's something that i ask myself a lot more when i interact with people from a cultural background that i am not familiar with yeah well and it's funny too because i think <clears throat> as i get older and uh, accumulate experience and learn a little bit maybe know a little bit more about how the world works and it's really a skill of successful people isn't it Oliver like mm. the relationship is ultimately what is going to get stuff done it uh, is it's not it's not that activity that you have in your head that needs to be done as soon as possible it's actually and I think probably if we look at the most successful people we know in life it's the people that take the time to develop those relationships because those relationships are going to serve you forever right and, and once you've developed a strong relationship you're always going to have it yeah yeah and this is why i see so much more success from people who actually live and work in the places where they're trying to get things done is because by default you have to have that long-term mindset uh whereas ngos or people who go in and much like myself like i would go in and okay we're going to do a building project i've got a client and then from there, I'm going to go somewhere else. I didn't necessarily have skin in the game. And that really colored my thinking and the approach that I had to those relationships. Uh, it was much more short term than, than I would be proud to admit most of the time. And I'm much more careful about getting closely involved with projects that I'm not going to be around for, especially in the maintenance phase. Um, I much more come in now at, a, at an advisory role and work with them to find stakeholders whose lives are connected to the outcome of that project, not just ones who want to see development somewhere else so that they can wash their conscience of something that they're destroying in their own place. Um, and I try and say that without judgment, but that's how a lot of these projects end up going. Um, mainly just because those relationships are essential to the longevity and the staying power of any initiative that you're trying to get off the ground. And you know that much better than I do. You've lived where you are for a very long time. Uh, how has that affected the development of all of the different projects that the, uh, that the Kamala Foundation has helped to, to develop? Well, I think that's, that's key. And, um, you know, the organization, when we talk about the Kamala Foundation, um, it is a Canadian registered charitable organization. We can give tax receipts. We're in good standing with the Canadian Revenue Agency, all that kind of stuff. But the actual heart of the Kamala Foundation is the people here doing the work in Nepal. Uh, and I think all our, our board is really, really 
um, open about that. There's no kind of like, there's no, there's no idea like the, the Kamala Foundation is this group of people in Canada. All we're doing is helping funnel resources from a place where there's maybe too much to <laughs> a place where there's not enough. Um, and, and, and at the same time, being just really amazed at what the community um, here in Nepal, what, what the work that they've done, the results that they've got. So uh, it's, and it's not even, you know, Oliver, I'm, I'm one small piece of, of the community. And it's the success of Kamla Foundation, which has been doing a lot of work with a very, very small budget for many, many years. Um, that success is, is because um, that there's so many people here really working from their heart. We have a huge network. Like, I, I, I mean, I know I got to get on the websites and be better about communicating everything we're doing, but like, I can't even like, you, you would have to come here and meet the people and stay on the farms and visit the villages that we're, we're living and working on. Cause I, I don't even know, I like, I don't know how to put that into a report or in one picture or even one video to be able to communicate. Um, you know, it is really about this community that's been uh, developed, that's still developing people being, new people coming in all the time, uh, more and more people being engaged, it's growing. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's it's that that I mean, community led, um, really human centric uh, kind of working, which has made the Kamla Foundation uh, successful. And I mean, I feel proud that I've been a part of it, but I'm also feeling really comfortable, Oliver, that like I could die tomorrow and this will keep going. And that really makes me feel happy, right? Because there was like a long time when we started to like started tripping out on the whole, okay, we got to do sustainable development and how do we make things sustainable? I mean, we've moved on beyond sustainability now, but when I was on that trip, it was all like, oh, if I die, then who's going to do this fundraising and who's going to manage this? And whereas now it's grown to a point where I can like confidently say I'm gone tomorrow and things will keep going. So, and that really speaks to, I think, the fact that we've invested and that we see it as an investment, but we've invested in developing that community. Yeah, that's a remarkable thing about your work and your process that I have admired since, since we first started speaking is that that is often missing in especially international work in communities of lesser means. There's an ego aspect of, you know, we gotta stay here, we gotta keep doing this work. Whereas if you have an exit strategy, you can hand it over to the people who are, you know, hopefully benefiting from the initiative, but who are also the ones who decide if this is going to continue to be a useful solution for them as their community evolves and grows. And it seems like that's something that you've done extremely successfully to the point where, like you said, you're not an essential element in it continuing. Um, it must be really satisfying to know that, you know, you still have things that you can contribute and that your efforts are appreciated, but that these projects are meaningful enough that if that kind of input and your specific uh, contributions were no longer there, that this is still valued enough that people will continue the work uh, without you. And I think having an exit strategy when starting a project like that is one of the ways that you can include that concept in from the beginning. 
it's something that I'm much more conscious of now as I continue to do or facilitate projects in different places is how quickly can I get it to a point where I am not needed? Uh, because if that takes too long, I'm not doing my job well. Uh, this needs to be something that people value enough on the ground who are involved with it that they will continue to put an effort into it, even if that support from outside starts to, to go away. Um, what have been some of the, the ways that you have, I guess, communicated with the community to make sure that what support is coming in or what efforts are coming from your part is actually valued and something that they want rather than something that is being kind of put on them through the concepts of what development or what sustainability is from the Western world. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a really fundamental question. Um, I think, you know, when I put on my, my designer's hat, it's really about designing a project. So, and, and that means um, going through a proper design process. Uh, having an actual framework, whereas, you know, Oliver, a lot of the work out there is like people just get an idea in their head and get some funds, boom, let's go implement it. Now, they haven't done a proper needs assessment. They haven't consulted with the community. They haven't done any capacity building. They haven't developed those relationships or that network yet. Just, okay, I'm going to build a school here. Look at these kids. There's no school. They got to walk for two hours to go to school every day. Okay, get some money, build a school. Right. It's like typical international development. The big NGOs, the big, big, super big NGOs still do it even right. The big NGOs, everybody's doing it. Sit in, sit in Brussels, you know, or Geneva or wherever Berlin, you get an idea, the board. OK, we're going to take this much money. We're going to invest in Nepal for this, this and this. Do they need it or not? Do they want it or not? Is it useful or not? Is it going to be sustainable or not? So, I mean, I think going through that whole design process um, and including as many stakeholders, and I mean, we use that word stakeholders, that can be governments, that can be the local teachers, women's groups, farmers groups, you know, the actual, the actual recipients of your project, um, including them in that design process from the earliest stage. So I like, I mean, I do a lot, that's a lot of my consulting, consultant, consulting work is around program and project design, not so much around land design, because that's not a big thing here in Nepal right now. Um, and, and I mean, the first stage, the first step in that, that project design is like going and meeting people, spending time with them, talking to them, picking their brains, letting them tell us what you know and just letting them even guide that conversation not having like a, a a proper interview where i'm asking specific questions get specific answers that comes later at the beginning it's just um it's just listening to them and and connecting with them and you learn a lot that way but even before that oliver and this is something which um has just recently really changed for me in the last, let's say three, four years, is before I used to do a lot of work where I would go or an organization would go and approach a community or a village and want to help them. That's changed now where people invite me to come. The community comes to search us out. It's changed the dynamic of the relationship. 
they hear, okay, we heard that you've done this in this village. You guys are working in agroecology, permaculture. We see you've done some woman-led enterprises. Uh, would you be willing to come talk to us about that? Would you be willing to come give us a presentation on what you're doing? It could be a local government body that heard about it, but it's them inviting us in. Um, and that's, that changes the whole relationship, that changes the whole game from the beginning. And that is really key to us um, developing and executing successful projects now. Oh, that's beautiful. And it really goes to the heart of my developing understanding of the difference in between the paradigms that we approach these things from. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work of Carol Sanford is one of my favorite people who's articulated the various paradigms from which people work from. And there being a key difference between the do good paradigm and the regenerative paradigm. The do good being you go in with an agenda of what you want to improve. And the, the regenerative paradigm being one where you go in to observe and listen and take the time to understand the unique capacity or the potential for the whole that you would otherwise be managing or influencing, whether that's uh, a family or a community or a water catchment or an ecosystem, right? And taking the time to understand that unique capacity or potential that it has so that you can play a role in facilitating its development without a personal agenda, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> without a personal agenda of what you think it should be. Um, and I'm still working myself to figure out exactly how to improve my skills in working from that direction. But being invited into a place is an amazing indication that there is a recognition of the efficacy of some of what you've done. And people see you as a potential facilitator for where they want to go. And that communication, that uh, conversation can be opened from a welcoming point rather than an agenda point. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think um, changing that as the dynamic of that relationship changes, um, it's so much easier to implement and maintain projects because one, there's no false expectations. Like when you, when you do chair, I hate charity work. Right. <laughs> and I mean, we're, a ch we're technically a charitable organization. The government of Canada, don't tell them I hate charity because we're a charitable organization. They don't listen to the show. But, it's okay. Yeah, but just just that idea of like being a charity is like, I need to give something to you for free to lift you up. And I mean, that's, it, it's exactly what you said. We're going in there to find what are the unique um, points, okay? Uh, uh, what, what are the unique um, strengths of this community? What, what are the, the opportunities which they face? And then how do we invest in those points, right? Um, to be able to empower them to take on the development work, right? So it's not even, I, I'm even moving away from like executing and implementing projects now, right? Because I yeah. think if the design is done properly and if, if we are having it community led, if we're having it community sent, having it be community centered, if we're including them in it from the beginning, Oliver, then they should be ready to go by the implementation stage, right? They should be like running full speed. If they've invited us in, right? That means that they're willing to put something into it. So it's, it's not a charity anymore. It's like, okay, we're gonna put some stuff into it. You're gonna put some stuff into it. You know, we're gonna do some interesting regenerative development work here. 
um, and like we're we're just exiting out of a project now. It's like it's it's made me so proud, Oliver. We've been working in a in a a, 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 a village in southern Nepal, which is you know what we call the untouchables. I think we touched about, talked about yeah, this. yeah, from the caste system, yeah. Yeah, in the Hindu caste system. Um, we've been working in this village for almost four years and we're we're exiting this project now because there's nothing for us to do now, Oliver. Like the woman just took over, you know? Wow. We did the literacy with them, right? We worked on some education things. We've been doing skill building, capacity building, you know, and, and the woman just like, they don't need us anymore. And, and it's such a beautiful thing, right? And it's really, for me, this project has just been like, wow, perfect, you know, like exactly how it can be done. Um, exactly these women, like if you go and meet these women, man, you will just, you'll like feel this vibe and energy coming off of them now where like they're just ready to go at it themselves. So yeah, I think I think there's, that's, there's a way of, of doing it properly. And um, it's it's a beautiful thing when you do it that way. Well, since you've been involved in so many initiatives at this point, have you noticed any common patterns in these projects that have had long-term success in contrast to those that sort of fizzle out? Yeah, definitely. I think one of the patterns is actual need. Yeah. Um, you know, that's when we talk to clients, um, our first step, it doesn't matter who they are, what they think they want to do. Our first step is, is we go and we do a proper community needs assessment, um, CNA. We call it CNA for short. We, we like to go in, we like to do videos. We like to do a bunch of games and activities, engage the community, you know, all these, um, these kind of, these different ways of collecting information and, 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 and building relationships with the people. Um, but there's so many things going on where there's actually just not a need for what people want to do, even if they, perceive that there's a need like building a school oh my god there's just like sorry i'm talking about schools just because everybody that comes from nepal they want to build a school in some remote village somewhere and it's like there's more schools than there is actual teachers in nepal or something now wow um yeah so that's a that's a big pattern it's just what really is there a need there and what is that need um and then you know you you design towards that or for that then you know um and then I think another pattern I've, I've, I've seen is um, there needs to be decent leadership in the community and in the village. If you're going into a village where like nobody's willing to stand up, nobody's willing to like take the lead on anything, you know, it's it, then it's for me, it's like, oh man, we got to go a few steps back then and like take some young people and, and help build up their capacity for a few years to be leaders you know but when you go in and you have and especially for us it's like especially when you have like a strong woman because women are really in these kind of villages women are really the heart of the community the men might be like the, the microphone and talking and doing the pol politics right. and stuff like that but the woman is the heart of the families the kitchen the food systems the farming systems so like when you have like a really empowered and and strong woman who will stand up and you know, be willing to take on responsibilities and leadership and stuff like that, then it gets really easy to work. So that's, mm -hmm. that's another pattern I've observed a lot. Yeah. Ah, incredible. Well, look, unfortunately we've been going for like an hour and we could, I don't, I don't see us slowing down whatsoever. So why don't we maybe put a bookmark in this and leave it for another session? 
Uh, in the meantime, how can our listeners get in touch with you, learn more about your projects and follow your work? Yeah, um, great, Oliver. I will get on um, updating the websites and stuff like that. That's my monsoon look, activity. In your defense, it's not in bad shape. Your, your website, all your web presence looks really good, even though it may not have the latest information. Yeah, well, and I will, I will get better with that. I am better, like, so we're mostly on um, Facebook and Instagram is kind of where I'm regularly updating because I can just, I can do that from my phone and quick and dirty and, and get it off and, and done and stuff. Mostly our audience is Nepali, so I am sorry if, if I do communicate a lot in Nepali, although I do try to do a lot most in English so everybody can understand. Um, we do have a new project coming up, Oliver, and I mean, now it's a, a whole another conversation, but we actually got really, really big funding to um, to do some, some big projects out here in East Nepal. So over the coming years, we are going to release um, 48 different videos um, about agroecology, agroecology in Nepal, um, and just a, a whole diversity of topics um, which are appropriate for uh, Nepali people and, and uh, more than Nepali people appropriate for everybody but uh, frame for Nepali people so we'll be yeah we'll be communicating through Facebook Instagram and YouTube those are the best places to get hold of us and maybe by September the websites will have a little bit more information and be a, li a, a little bit more integrated with the social media but yeah oh, incredible that's really really exciting I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing those develop and start to be released um, Look, yeah, and you know, I really defer to a lot of your expertise on this, but I hope that this conversation will spur others as well, because I by no means I'm an expert. I'm very much still in the learning phase. I've been able to glean some information, especially from examples of people like you and others that I've been able to interact with both in person and through the podcast network. Um, but I really encourage people to join on the Discord server because you and I have plenty of conversations there. You've been quite active and it's a really good place to exchange ideas because there's a lot of us who have moved to foreign areas, are navigating new cultures, learning how to communicate within those dynamics and becoming better listeners and participants rather than pushing agendas or trying to you know, move things along with our preconceived notions. And it's really great to see voices like yours and so many other really inspiring participants uh, interacting on that channel and, and you know, in, in the other publications that they put out. And I really wanna thank you for those contributions. And, and man, it's just really good to get together and chat. We always have good conversations. Um, and I hope that we can catch up again before too long. It's been, it's been too long since our last chat. Let's not wait too long for the next one. Yeah, for sure, Oliver. And, and yeah, I'll be, I'm going to be more active on discord. So, um, yeah, that can be a place where people can, can, you know, stay in touch with us also. And I'll be there. Fantastic, buddy. All right. Well, look, you have a great rest of your day. We'll be in touch real soon. Thanks once again to Zach Barton. I'll be posting all of the links that he mentioned on the show notes for this episode on the website, where you can also find all of the previous episodes from the last five seasons. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the ongoing conversations happening around these topics on the Regenerative Skills Discord server. It's always free to join, and it's also the easiest way to get in touch with me directly. So if you're interested in helping to guide the direction and the focus of this show out into the future, or just get some feedback on your own projects and have some of your questions answered, it's all happening there. 
So come and join the growing community of Earth Regenerators on the forum by signing up through the link on our website or through our link tree on Instagram. And that's it for our show this week. As always, don't forget to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.